Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Kathy. I am delighted to have you today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We have had a mess of trying to get this uh, scheduled and then trying to get get the technology to cooperate with us. But... uh, you're, I think, at your home base in Wisconsin, and I'm sitting at a random coffee shop in a uh, in a remote airport in Louisiana. <laughs> and uh, so I am looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. But before, before we dive into our topic uh, today, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Happy to do that, and thank you for taking the time and having this make a, be available to us. I'm Kathy Linz, and I have been working for, well, we won't say how many years, because that will date us, right? So I've been yeah. working for a number of years um, with a number of federal subcontracts, as well as state programs and nonprofits. Uh, I do a lot of the work that helps HIV and AIDS organizations, organizations working on homelessness, violence, 
mental illness, substance use and addiction, human trafficking, I've been helping them really build and learn more about how they can make their organizations sustainable in some cases or just get them started. Um, most recently, I've started uh, my own effort called Financially Savvy Nonprofits to really help us say, how do we really think this through to make this a great experience, the one where we're not constantly in the struggle? So that's kind of where I'm coming from and what I do. What, what what type of org? So the the type of organization that you're um, is is that generally a smaller grassroots type of organization that you're serving? I have to imagine it does tend to be that way. Uh, that we do have a few that have developed a little bit more, and that's what we want to see happen. That people build those pieces, become a bigger, more sustainable organization. So that's what we're always helping them work towards. And the beauty of it is, in some cases, they've gotten federal funding. And for some of them, the uh, maybe there's a step or a hiccup in the process where something isn't quite right. So in that particular case, I'll get a call that says, would you please go out and sit down, work with them, go through the whole system and figure out where's the hiccup coming from and how can we get this back on track? Because the beautiful thing is that people want these projects to be successful. They want them to go well. So we're all doing what we can to make sure that happens. And in other cases, you've got community advocates who they know the community, they know the situation. They're not as familiar with, okay, how do I actually go about this with these health departments, with these agencies at the county level, at the state level? So in those particular cases, those organizations will say, can you send somebody out who can really help walk them through this? What do we have to know that helps them, in fact? And, and my conversation with them is really, what do you need to know so that you're competitive? This is what you're up against. This is the other things that other people are going to be bringing to the table. And for some, they've literally looked at me and stopped and said, no one has ever talked to us before about like how to be competitive in what we do so that we can bring the funds consistently our way that we actually have thought that part through. Yeah. So every, uh, Kathy, as you know, we invite our guests to come on with a big idea or bold opinion. And I think I know the direction you're going to go with this today. Uh, I, we had a recent conversation with a guest uh, who was talking about some, what I think are going to be, uh, with what I think is a similar issue. He was talking about raising money in Minneapolis in the midst of the tragedy and the uh, social disruption, I guess we could say, that's been playing out in Minneapolis for quite some time. Um, but uh, Kathy, what do you have for us today? Well, we actually made it a connection based on the fact that Darren Walker had talked about, like, how do we move to this new gospel of wealth? How do we actually build justice? And actually, your post said on there and said, it's time to move beyond easy charity. And I saw that I immediately said absolutely that's it amen because <laughs> I think about all of the organizations that I work with like I said mental illness drug addiction homelessness human trafficking post-prison reentry. they will consistently as I'm working with them say well Kathy we're a lot less attractive than the other programs that are out there um, how yeah. do we go about getting this done because we're not the ones that they think about funding and that's where we would come back and say, you know, if you want to talk about justice and where we need to work, this is an area where we need to 
really start to pay more attention in that area. And it was funny because after we shared that post, it was amazing to me how many of the folks that I know who work in those areas were like, yes, you got it. That's it. Thank you for saying that. That's because it was just a general consensus of, yeah, this is a problem. This is what we're dealing with. You know, you know, Kathy, I have spent a lot of time looking at Darren. I've read, I've recently read Darren Walker's new book. Um, in fact, I was listening to an interview that uh, Darren Walker had. Um, I believe it was with the on the Economist magazine's web uh, podcast last night. Um, and I, I've got to say, I, I think there's sort of a a split down the middle. Um, and I don't know what I don't want to necessarily suggest that it's 50 50, but we could for just simplicity's sake, just suggest that it's that way. But I, I would say that, you know, there's probably about half of us that are okay with his message and about half of us in the fundraising space that seem to be a little uncomfortable with his message. What do you, why do you think that is? Because it's challenging what has always been. I mean, what, what I have found so helpful in the process is that sometimes when we look at being donor centric, which is a good thing, I'm not saying that it's not, but there are comes a point where you are going too far over and making it about all that they care about is what they're most interested in. Well, that means for a lot of these other projects, this isn't going to be where they make the connection. This isn't where they naturally go. And if they do, what we tend to see happening in some of the organizations, because Part of what we want in this whole process is we say we need to be doing good storytelling. That's how we connect with donors. We've got to tell a good story. Well, the concern that I have is that it becomes almost a dog and pony show. Let's trot out people who are some of the clientele that we're working with for the sake of the donors so that they can see how, you know, like, oh, this, this difficulty, this hard thing, this. And I'm like, that's not right. That's there's a problem with human dignity at that moment. And it's become that um, we need to think about like, what are we in fact asking people to do? I've, I've been at the, the breakfasts, the dinners, the, where they'll say, okay, we're going to have this person share their story now. And I think in terms of what's that mean for them, what's the ramifications for them in sharing that story? And part of it really sets home for me because I think of people who have experienced trauma. Yeah. And, and frankly, a lot of the folks that we're talking about have experienced trauma. Yes, we're talking trauma in COVID, but in any other circle of that we're talking about with the type of organizations we're talking about and who they serve, trauma is a very common thing. And it's, it's not always easy to tell your story. And in being asked to tell your story, which is what nonprofits need them to do, they want them to give this emotional appeal because then people will get their checkbooks out and this will be great without any thought to necessarily what does that mean for someone who's in, we're still working through the trauma that they've experienced. Uh, for some folks, you're talking about flashbacks, um, that remembering of that starts to then haunt them. Uh, and as well as, unfortunately, there are some people who, knowing that about you, will use it against you. You know, yeah, so that's Kathy, part of the difficulty. Yeah. yeah, Kathy, before you before you and I started hit the record, we had an offline conversation before, and I was sharing with my wife. So my wife and I are 
our entire professional career has largely been in, we've been involved with a number of nonprofit organizations. And I was sharing with her, I said, this woman, Kathy, was sharing with me this notion that sometimes storytelling doesn't sort of fit. And, um, and, and we were sort of recalling the number of times or the number of organizations that we have collective, you know, together have worked for, where we sort of impressed upon the, um, in, in one case, we were working for a children's home and the children were, you know, these were oftentimes young, young adults, they're teenagers, and they were given the opportunity to step up in front of an audience and tell their story. Um, and I have to say that it was that, you know, it was that recent conversation that you and I had that sort of just made me sort of think, you know, did we, did we appropriately, did we, did we, the, the, those of us on the fundraising side, the organizational side sort of interrogate enough of the process and sort of know enough about what was going on to ensure that by asking this 14 or 15 year old young lady or young man to tell their story was actually a timely and appropriate sort of thing to do. Is that, that's sort of, that's what you're asking us to sort of challenge, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. Because there is a power dynamic problem at that point. You know, you've, you've got someone who they're hoping that you'll continue to help them. Yeah. These, and, these children, right. Exactly. These children were not, were in our care and they were not going home anytime soon. Exactly. Yeah. And so they feel like they have to do what you ask, but they right. may not even be aware of what that's going to mean for them and what the fallout will be both for themselves as well as where the interactions they have with others. And I, I thought it was very telling. We had a off well, earlier. We had a conversation where we were talking about, well, maybe we wouldn't, you know, maybe we don't have them do the big group. But what if we just have them sit one on one with a donor and I, and as a fundraiser, we're there with them. And then can they tell them story? And it was that opportunity to stop and say, who really has earned the right to hear someone's story and be aware of the fact that just because someone might write a check still doesn't mean that they've necessarily earned that right to hear someone's like maybe their shame story, that thing that they've had to keep secret in some way in order to, to still function and do what they need to do. And I think that's a, a part of the conversation that we have to think about is just like, how else do we do that? How else can we, and even if someone said to me, well, Kathy, could we just, you know, like share their story for them. Do you have permission right. to do that? <laughs> right. And they were like, right. oh, well, oh, <laughs> you had to go right. there, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Well, uh, Kathy, it, it really, it, I mean, I'm a guy who likes to challenge everything. So I'm perfectly fine with the conversation, but I have to say it, it just sort of made me pause when you and I had that offline conversation I thought, yeah, you're right. There are times, there are times when the story, when we, the beneficiary, the benefactor, or we, the say the facilitator of change, you know, what, whatever sort of posture we see ourselves in this process are not necessarily entitled to that story. And, um, and I have to say that there hasn't been a time when I would have invited a young person, for example, you know, uh, or an individual to tell their story where I probably wasn't in that power, that more powerful, more superior sort of posture. I mean, is there ever a time, 
is there ever a time where the organization can invite or you know encourage this person, this individual, whoever this person is, to tell their story when they're not in a more superior posture? They're always in that role. Am I right? Pretty much. I mean, that's that's part of the difficulty. Right. And I think part of the the part of the other side of that is then looking at it and saying, so what's my intent in doing this other than making getting money? Okay, I get that. But yeah, but then again, that I mean that doesn't I it's interesting because I hear people talking about it as like uh poverty porn or survivor porn of and they're like, boy, that sounds terrible. And it's like, well, that's because it is. That's that, yes. you know, like that idea that we're pimping people out just for, to, you know, to bring in that money literally becomes the, wait a minute, let's really like stop and think about it. And, and I think what's probably the most helpful, because I have this conversation, I do training with the uh, AmeriCorps, AmeriCorps VISTA members, again, who are trying to address poverty out in their communities, trying to see how they can help organizations do a better job. And when we've talked around this area, they're like, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable. And I said, I get that because it's an ethics problem. I truly, it's an ethics problem. And part of the conversation also has to then be, how do I help show people not at their worst, but at their best? Like, is there the, because I always have to be careful too of not reinforcing stereotypes in the process of staring like what, where one was at one point. But maybe it's more of the, where's the resiliency? Conversations about the good. And, and I think that then becomes the other side of the struggle is people are like, well, I don't know if that's as sexy as, I don't know if that's going to get us what we need. And like, and there is where we need to really think about what are we setting donors up for that their expectation is, is that they want to hear those stories. How do we set that up? And this is something that I continue to think about, talk with the, you know, other colleagues about other, the, the vistas about to see like, how, how do we best do that in a way that truly honors who people are and honors who it is that we're engaging with? Because part of it is how we set things up and what we've set up with the donors of what they should expect or how they should interact with that. And that's also a part that we have to own. Yeah, and, and so this this loops us back to Darren Walker's. So when I think of the sort of, if I think of fundraising and I think of the work that we do in the nonprofit sector as sort of on a spectrum, we we can sort of see ourselves doing charity work at one one far end of the spectrum. And then we can see ourselves doing work that is justice oriented, sort of on the far other opposite end of the spectrum, if if, if that's fair to sort of see it that way. And I can see and understand, and I think my listeners probably can grasp it as well as I as I suspect you can too, that as we move down that spectrum of moving away from charity to justice, it becomes harder money to raise and it becomes a more it becomes a more long-term conversation. It becomes less, you know, you're not going to be able to deliver on outcomes right away. This it's going to be more ambiguous, short certainly in the short term. Um, you know, I think about my time working in education, for example. You know, the the ultimate evidence. You know, in education, getting a child from kindergarten to twelfth grade, in my opinion, is the fulfillment of justice. But it literally takes those thirteen years to do that, and so you don't get to sort of sell this immediate story that, you know, little Sally accomplishes something in the next 90 days. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're getting at? We're getting at sort of this, 
the longer term. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's harder money to raise. And maybe some of the flinching, maybe some of the flinching and the pushback that we're seeing, and I'm seeing it on social media when people bring up Darren Walker's stuff, um, his ideas, that maybe what they're just resisting is hard. It's just harder money to raise. Mm-hmm. Because you don't get to, you don't get to, you don't get to put that cute fourteen-year-old, you know. That and this is what we did at the children's home. We put fourteen and fifteen-year-old, you know, cute kids in front of these churches, for example, and let them tell their tragic stories. And you know, these these what were the equivalent of their grandparents, you know, wrote checks, but. You know, in hindsight, it it makes me feel like I exploited them. You know, I'm I'm sitting here processing something that we did 20 years ago. So, um, oh, but, but, I know it's, you- but it's current. I mean, I just got a invite on LinkedIn this morning from someone who works with photographer, uh, the video part of it. And he goes like, "I'd like to talk to you because we really help nonprofits get that emotional connection." That, and there was a part of me that just kind of made the hair on the back of right. my neck stand up, like, oh. "Yeah, yeah." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of like, I'm not sure what we're about to walk into, but I guess we'll get to check this out a little bit more. You know, because, because that's part of it is because that's really where people have been driven to looking at and saying, you know, the better that emotional appeal is that, you know, we could really bring that out. Well, we have to balance that and think like, what's again, what's just, what's, what's recognizing who people are. And I guess to me, human dignity is so, so important in the work that we do. And I don't think it always comes to mind as often as it should about really honoring who people are. And it may be another opportunity as well to say, can we get smarter about maybe part of the training process is to say as well, what's healthy for you and helping some of our participants understand boundaries. You know, that's think, going to be part of, need to be a part of our conversation too. I, I think it's just an opportunity to do exactly what I've been in many ways advocating for for quite some time. I think it's an opportunity for fundraisers to step up to the plate and do really hard fundraising type work that doesn't, that's not quote unquote easy. Um, it's not charity oriented. Um, it's perhaps not quote unquote storytelling. Um, it doesn't have the most compelling sort of short-term immediate outcomes. You don't, it, it, it is rather ambiguous in the short term. Um, it does have to be heavily trust-based and relationship-based. You're going to have to be able to sit across the lunch table from an individual and perhaps not have Sally or John tag along with you and tell their story. And you're going to have to push that donor to perhaps write them a very significant check uh, for something that they may not quite be compelled to do. And that doesn't feel terribly donor centered for a lot of our fundraisers out there, but it is absolutely just justice centered as, as Walker would have us. Am, am I, are you following my line of thinking here? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's becomes the, where we step into next, how we go about making this happen. And that's, you know, I guess that's the thing I want people to really stop and think about and really just reflect on how they're doing things currently 
in these areas. And I, I know this is the, for everybody who's already working in this area, this is something that they've been trying to really stop and think about and say, like, how do we do that? But they, they also recognize, they're like, I'm not willing to go there. Therefore, we're looking for the techniques that will help us not have to be exploitive in what we do. And that, I think, is the, the new challenge, the next thing to be looking at and say, like, how do we do that hard work, the, the, the conversations that we have to have? Because they're not the same conversations we're having currently. They always say that you can't go to a new level doing what you've always done. You've got to actually figure out how to expand, to, to increase your skill, to go to that next point. That's the next point we're going to need, need some help with to go to. Well, in, in a couple of a couple of years ago, Kathy, and we we had a guest on here probably a hundred episodes back uh, that was talking about the the critique of sort of using, for example, using stories and using images in direct response, for example, that were inconsistent or without permission or something, you know. Um, and it was very honorable work that the woman was trying to advocate for, but. I think in between the lines, I think my my question, and I think I even raised this question, is is the channel itself. And and my listeners know that I tend to be rather critical of direct response and a lot of the direct room and you know the the explicit sort of mass marketing sort of approach. And and that's what I'm that's what I want to ask you when you're thinking about what you're talking about in getting fundraising right in the context of what your your critique is does mass does mass communication of any form whether it be in the mail or 500 people in a banquet hall does it work does it ever work okay here's the the sad part is are people bringing in money that way yes yeah. there are people who are bringing in money yeah i just don't think they're giving any thought to what that meant for our clientele Right, right, right. You're, you're saying that you're saying that it works. You're saying that from a utilitarian sort of standpoint, and that's what I've always been frustrated with about fundraising is is that it we always sort of very pragmatically say, well, hell, hell, it works. But but what I think I'm hearing you say, Kathy, is is that perhaps anything that's mass communicated is probably not. Is probably not going to line up with the ethic. Ethic. It's probably going to create ethical dilemmas along the lines of what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. And and we have to care enough about our clientele to realize the damage that we cause in the process. And again, I think that's where people tend to fall out. Is that in fundraising, I don't think. Um, how should I say this? Sometimes fundraising is divorced from the program side. Uh huh. And so they yeah. just marched ahead to say, as long as I've raised the money, I've done my job. Right. Well, that's not our only job. And that's where we need to come back to and say, you know, and unfortunately, that's where people tend to tend to look at us and say, well, those fundraisers, those they're, they're slimy creeps. They're it's all about the money for them. Well, it's like, well, it shouldn't be. That's that's where we really need to stop and take a look. So, so let me, so let's wrestle with this, this lab before I let you go, let's wrestle with this question. So I was listening to Darren Walker's, like I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I was listening to an interview that he was giving uh, with the, on the economist magazines podcast last night. And 
in some one of the things he talks about is that philanthropy in the nonprofit sector has perhaps in some ways taken on too much responsibility in this case is is in between the lines of your concerns and your critique of what we're talking about here is are are we taking on too much responsibility and therefore because we take on that responsibility for things that maybe we shouldn't be taking on responsibility is that what essentially gets us in trouble you follow what i'm asking um i'm just trying to think that through a little bit more like, because like I think he, there's, he, there's things he, that in the, as the, the participants, I'm an extrovert. You're going to have to just bear with me as I think that through. Yeah, that's fine. He's he's um, usually uh, anybody who listens to the podcast knows that I repeat the questions generally twice because I know my listeners are processing my questions. So what what he's what he's basically saying is that, that there's responsibilities that the nonprofit sector takes on that the actual that actually, for example, the government ought to be taking on. And that when the government, when when the nonprofit sector sort of comes, steps in to try to be Superman or Superwoman, we get ourselves in trouble because the, the, the some of these most most significant problems in our society are actually not problems that philanthropy can solve. The, the scale and magnitude is too significant. And um, here's the here's the thing I think as I'm thinking through what you're saying and thinking through like what that looks like. Here's the interesting part is government pretty much on its sake doesn't necessarily do the work themselves. They contract out to people. They give the money to nonprofits to actually do this work. Yes, because government as they are don't have the systems to do that. And if honestly, if I had to leave things to the government to take care of. Me personally, right. I would be terribly concerned. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to be be nice here, but I'm just saying I would be concerned. So I see nonprofits having probably they're already receiving the government money to do some of this work. That's where some of those grant dollars are coming from when it comes to government dollars, which is a pretty significant chunk. Um, yeah. So I, I see them already there. Um, I think it's probably more so of partnerships. Um, and, and again, this is the difference between working with clientele as partners or working with clientele as people we help. Um, because I see too often, and I have that conversation with Vistas as well, is to say, how are you working with the people that you're engaging with? Are they just people that you do things for? Or are they people with agency who offer things in return. I mean, for fundraising, I'm like, how often do you ask your, your clientele, your participants to donate, to contribute to, well, Kathy, we can't do that. They're, you know, they're, they're here because of poverty. They're here because I'm like, so you're saying they don't have anything to contribute? Really? Really? I'm like, wow. Talk about taking away from them the opportunity to have that same sense of satisfaction for being able to help as other donors have. You're not even going to give them that chance, that opportunity, um, because I think it's the it's the partnerships that will need more so than, than counting on government to necessarily take those on. It's, it's really looking in within our communities, within our participants, in partnership with organizations that are probably going to move us forward far greater than anything else, mainly because the government, I come from a standpoint of we need to look at what the local thing that we can do, because they're the best judge 
and the best ones to be in a position to do something about the situation that they have. The further out that you go, the more difficult it's going to be, and it's not generally going to be as helpful. So I'm always going to come back to the community advocates, the folks in community who, given the opportunity to truly step into that, into that kind of partnership, are going to do a far better job of what the community really needs. I mean, I, I see you, it already. Who do you? Some of the, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, who do you? Um, so again, I'm 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 sort of uh, reflecting on some of the conversations my wife Eric and I have. Who do you trust? Who do you trust the most in this conversation when we're talking about the government and and say, for example, we're talking about the nonprofit. I tend to be uh, I tend to be very trusting of the church, for example, whereas my wife is not nearly as confident in the church, the church's ability to step up to the plate. Who do you most trust in this case to get this right? So if the resources were all there, who would you trust the most? Honestly, the community advocates. Which would be tied, which presumably would be tied to enlisted by and, and employed by the nonprofit or would be uh, government employees? Neither of the above. There are people who live every day in the community, maybe doing what they do for work, but see this as this is my community and therefore this is why I'm going to take this on. Oh, they're, they're, they're so, so they're almost like, I mean, they're, they're basically very independent. They're citizens. They're, sen- they're citizens citizen advocates who see this and say, this has to be different. We can't continue like this. And I've worked with those kind of community advocates all over the country. They are a big part of, some of them will eventually start nonprofits, but they yeah. started out as like, I have, we have to do something about this. We understand the community better than everybody else that you're talking about. And they're the ones who I would probably trust the most to be really looking out for and thinking about what does that mean? What does that feel like as someone who lives this every day? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's uh, <laughs> so Kathy, I'm wrapping up a book project and the third, the third book that's sort of simmering in my head is sort of where the nonprofit sector sort of fits in our economy as it relates to these other. Um, and I keep coming back to uh, and I even conclude the new book with this notion of the citizen different than, for example, the consumer. I think so much of our society has been so oriented towards the consumer, which which is kind of the underlying critique that you're making about the storytelling. Um, you know, you're basically saying to us, you don't have a right to consume somebody else's story in exchange for your charitable gift. Right. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I don't think we like to, I don't think we like to think of our donors as consumers, but I think in many ways we're using the same tactics same tactics and strategies and we and oftentimes we the fundraising professionals come from these consumer oriented sort of domains where that's what we're doing we're sort of saying you know let's craft a story for which the donor can consume Mm -hmm. instead of looking and saying realistically this is how things i mean part of it you know even given the community that we're talking about Doing work and trauma work, I know one of the things that's always true is that you will think that you've worked through something and suddenly something will trigger it and you'll find yourself going into the spiral again 
for deeper healing, for deeper things, but it's it's never very a linear line that people are going to be following as they do this work. And so people yeah. need to be prepared for the fact of what's the spiral that's going to be coming because that's going to be the process of what people are going to walk through. It's so not going to be an A to Z. It's a loop to loop to loop process. So uh, going back to my my wife and I's earlier work, before I let you go, so we worked at, at the very, this was 20 plus years ago, we worked at a children's home. It was essentially sort of a modern day version of an orphanage. And we used to bust, the ch- we would gather the children together on Sunday evenings and we would put these children in buses and we'd take them to sponsoring churches and we would allow the children to tell their stories. You know, these are 14, 15 year old kids in many cases. Would you Would you say that that's, would you even do that? Would that even be, if you were in charge of that sort of, if you were running that organization, is that what you would do? Repeat that question one more time. Okay. So we were a children's home. We bust, we would take, we the children, we, we would put them in the buses on Sunday evenings and we would take the children to the sponsoring churches and we would allow the children, most in most cases, the children would volunteer to tell their story. So I'm curious, I'm just curious you know, and I don't know if the organization continues to do this, but if you were running that organization, would you do that? Would you allow that to sort of be a signature way of appealing to these churches? Or would you see that as probably flawed from the, at the core? I see problems in the process, mainly because you could ask a young person to tell their story. And they won't know until after they've done it what impact it'll have for them, what things it may have brought up. But so because they're trying to please you, they want to, you know, be helpful. They'll do it. But I I think there's just far too many potential problems that will come back to bite them. (laughs) I never would have thought about it. that. That's that's phenomenal that you stirred me up that way. I have never thought about it that way, that it would, it would only be that the, that the harm that we could therefore have inflicted would have only, would only sort of be known once we put that child up on that stage, allows them to tell that story. And then that child realizes I maybe shouldn't have done this. It never would have occurred to me. And, it, and it's too late now, but they're living with the, and, and I understand that part of it because I, yeah. I myself, I, I live with trauma. I, know, I understand this very, very well. And there are times where I've been asked to, in fact, will I tell my story? Will I talk about that? And I will have terrible nightmares afterwards. And I, yeah. I, that's after a lot of work. And so it's it's just really, I look at that and say, kids are not going to be in the position to really always know how to maneuver that. And who's going to be there with them when that, if that does flare up for them? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's necessarily there. Wow. I could really keep you going and you could really keep me, uh, contemplating <laughs> but we lose our listener we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes and um kathy you're always welcome back we can have these conversations again and again but if there's somebody listening to our conversation today and perhaps they want to probe and wrestle with and interrogate their fundraising thinking or any of their thinking how would you how could they reach out to you and have that conversation just drop me an email it's a uh, kathy which is kathy with a c and a y c-a-t-h-y at dev-plus.com 
and and or look me up on LinkedIn and you'll find me there. It's Kathy Lins, L-I-N-S. Kathy, it has certainly been a pleasure. I'm glad that we figured this out. Uh, you, you at your home and me in this remote coffee shop in Louisiana, we made this work. It's certainly been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.